Over recent weeks, months, we've been working our way through the first letter of John, so we're going to continue in that this morning. It's good to have you all here, but I ask you just to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 24, and then we're going to go to chapter 4 and read from verse 7 to verse 21. This is the message you have from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Then chapter 4 from verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our friends, for our sins, sorry. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that he lives, that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. 
There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's just come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you once more for the the challenge of your word and all that it says to us today about your love and how we need to demonstrate your love. Not the the love of this world, but your love, your particular love in our lives. And that it says we show your love, that we show that we belong to you. And then we need have no fear, because as we belong to you, we are yours forever. We praise you and ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we're going to join again with John in doing what we've been doing over the last few weeks and looking at some of the great authenticating marks of Christian experience. That is those qualities that we need to look for, that we need to see in the life of a teacher, in the life of a Christian, whose presence proves the reality of that individual's Christian life and experience. Yes, and whose absence proves, despite maybe extravagant claims and fervent protest to the contrary, the falsehood of an individual's claim to Christian life and experience. Now, in connection with this, in recent weeks we've looked at things like doctrine, and holiness. And we've seen that for the Christian, does, doctrine does matter. That having a right understanding of our faith matters. And holiness does matter. Living a life that is seen in the light of our understanding, that is an overflow of our understanding, that matters. These are two vital pointers to the reality, to the living presence of true faith in our lives. However, maybe at times as we've looked at these things, well, maybe you felt a little bit out of your depth because you feel that the discerning of of right doctrine, right teaching, of truly holy living, well, that's a bit beyond you. It's a bit beyond the, the spiritual and intellectual level that you feel you're capable of operating at. Well, Let me just say in passing, I'm not going to dwell on it, but I have to say it, that often I believe that kind of attitude is nothing other than a camouflaged cop-out, a spiritualized attempt to try and avoid a legitimate spiritual responsibility. But you see, what we do is we try and dress up what fundamentally is spiritual laziness in the more spiritual, acceptable disguise of humility, but that just won't do. It will not do, for I believe God has given the average Christian, the average Christian, the ability necessary, the resources necessary to be able to discern falsehood. And what we so often lack is not the ability, but the courage 
It's our fear, our fear of the potential cost maybe of exposing falsehood that underlies our laziness, fuels that laziness. And if this is true of our lives, I've got to say this is something that we need to repent of. But the test of falsehood we're going to look at now is one that we'll maybe feel a little bit less weary of. For it's love. It's love. And just the very mention of that word is usually enough to give a Christian a nice, warm, reassuring glow within. From when we talk of love, we feel that we really are on home territory. We understand love. We feel more comfortable, more at home with love than things like doctrine and holiness. But you know, the question I want to ask is do we? Do we? Do we really understand what biblically love is? Do we understand it in such a way that we can practice it. We've heard the word love again and again. I'm sure we've been taught again and again what God's love is. But somehow it seems to me that what that word really actually means has failed to take root in some of our lives. So what's the problem then? What's the problem? That's what we're going to look at first. What's gone wrong? Why, if it's true, is it that we fail to really understand love. And so as a result of that then, are unable to really show love in our lives, to actually live in love day by day, and certainly are incapable of discerning what's true from what's false in this, this whole area. Why is this so? What's the problem? I would suggest that the roots of this problem lie in a steady decline, an ongoing degeneration in the understanding and expectation of love that we find today in this world in which as Christians we are set. For you see, it's been said that in the 19th century, love was essentially about romance. All the talk was about falling in love. And love, by and large, was seen as something emotional. But now you see, in the 21st century, this has changed. And people do still talk about falling in love, but more and more they seem to talk of making love. Love then is seen as something sexual, something physical, something that's to be experienced in the here and now. But you see, all of this has had an impact, and I believe it's had a negative impact on the church and in the life of the individual Christian. Because unless we are very careful and very vigilant, what goes on in the world around us, what's accepted in our society, in our culture, will have a negative impact on us. Paul, you see, warns us in Romans 12, verse 2, not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But you see, if we don't take that, that warning seriously, and we don't work at it, if we don't renew our minds by constantly taking in and constantly seeking to live out the truth of the Word of God, if we don't seek to align our minds and our spirits with God's mind and spirit by coming to Him in prayer, then instead of being transformed into the likeness of the Lord, we will be conformed to this world. 
and in this area of love, I fear that this is just what has happened. So in the church, we now have, as the world around us has, a very emotional, experience-centered view of love. So love is something that we do when we feel like it, when we're moved to do it, when it suits us. And the ultimate proof today of, of God's love in, in our lives, well, for many that seems to be those times when they put it in their words, they feel bowled over in God's presence. Roy Clements gives an example of this in his little study book on, on First John because he talks there of being present at a student discussion group when they were looking at this, this very epistle. In fact, they were looking at 1 John 4, 16, where it says... Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives, and God in him. And the leader asked on this particular night, can anybody tell us what this means? And a young lady who is present burst out, oh yes, I can. I think I've experienced it. Sometimes in my quiet times, I'm just bowled over by Jesus' love. It reduces me to tears. Jesus' love is so wonderful I feel as if the whole room that I'm in is bathed in love. Now, that's wonderful if it's true. But is this the ultimate proof of God's love? Is this kind of experience what John is talking about here when he says that whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him? Is this the, the kind of experience of God that all of us should anticipate and all of us should aim for? Honestly, I believe that an experience of God where we feel bowled over by the love of Jesus, if that experience is genuine, should be treasured and certainly should never be despised. But I'm not convinced that this is what John is talking of here. Nor do I believe that this kind of emotional intensity of experience is something that's going to be known by every Christian. Because you see why we all should have intimacy and reality in our relationship with God. Yet some of us, because of the kind of temperament we have, the kind of personality that we have, are unlikely to have that kind of same experience. You see, we don't break down in tears. We just don't do that. We don't feel bathed in love. But that's not because there's something wrong with us, at least not necessarily. No, rather... This is just an expression of the type of person that we are. The maybe kind of steady, unflappable, neither up or down personality and temperament that we've got. And when this is the case for us, when this is what we are by nature, this is not something that I believe should worry us or make us feel in any way spiritually inferior. For as I've said, this kind of high emotion... This kind of up-tempo, upbeat experience is not essential for us to be Christians who truly know God and so are able to show the love of God. Okay, and so far we've, we've talked about the, the world's view of love, which I've claimed and said has infiltrated the church and has then led us to put the highest value on a love which by and large is emotional and experience-oriented. And we've also hinted, we've also inferred that, that God's love 
that love that should be alive in us and should be seen in our lives, we've hinted that that love is rather different. But in what ways, though, is God's love different? What are the distinctive qualities of God's love that enable us to distinguish that which is true from that which is false and counterfeit? Well, let's just compare and contrast. First, the love of the world is a love that has remained fundamentally unchanged right down through the ages. And in John's time, this love was was really summed up by one basic Greek word. There were a number of other different words for love, but this one word, eros, was by far and away the one that was most commonly, most frequently used. Now, it's from this word, it's from the word eros, that our English word erotic is derived. But don't, from that, get, get the wrong idea. Don't get the wrong idea, because eros love is not necessarily bad. In fact, in essence, it's not bad at all, although it can be twisted and perverted by sin. But but given the right context, eros is a wholesome and is a worthy love. Indeed, that's probably the main distinctive of eros. The eros primarily is a love for the worthy. That's what defines it. However, it's also in, in different relationships, in different degrees, depending on the context, it's also a love of desire. It's a demanding love. It's a greedy love. It's a love that is born in the emotions. So Eros, then, you see, is a love that is capable of being a love of the light. But it can also be twisted to become dark and even demonic. For Eros love has led people to do some terrible, terrible things. I remember a while ago, and it's become more common, but a while ago, there was the story I read of a man whose wife had left him. And his perverted, obsessive love for her led him to say that no man would ever look at her. So he threw acid in her face leaving the one that he claimed that he loved blind and permanently disfigured. So you can see then, I hope you can see, why a love like this, a love that's capable of being twisted and distorted in this kind of way, has got real drawbacks in terms of being used in connection with the love of God. So it was because of this, I believe, That when Jesus came, he took hold of a Greek word for love that was hardly ever used. A word that that stood in the shadows of, of Greek language and Greek literature. And Jesus took this word and he brought it right out into the open and he filled it with a whole new range of meaning. And he made this word, agape, his distinctive word for the distinctive love of God and the love of the people of God. And how different this love is. How different agape love is. How different God's love is from Eros love, from this world's love. You see, God's love is a love not for the worthy, 
but for the unworthy. God's love is a love not for the desirable, but for the undesirable. It's a love not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. And it's a love that's born not in the emotions, but rather that is born in the will. Because God loved us. Not because he looked us and saw something, someone worthy and attractive, deserving of love. Something that that moved him to love. Something that bowled God over. No, rather, God loved us as he looked at us in the ugliness of our sin. As he saw us there repugnant to him in his holiness and demanding only and deserving only his judgment. But you see, God loved us because his nature is love. And he loved us by an act of the will. Yes, God had to overcome his emotions and he had to decide, he had to determine to love us. Not because of what we are, but despite what we are. And you see, it's there. Back to the will of God that we trace back the roots of God's love in our life and begin then to see how primarily that love of God should then express itself in our life. That is the ultimate origin of God's love in our lives. His love that we then share with others. It lies not in the emotions, but it lies in the will. In his will, in our will, we love because God first, by an act of his will, decided to love us and to set us free from sin. And he then enables us to love with that same kind of love. As it says in 1 John 4, 10 and 19, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. Now you see, it matters that we understand this, that God's love is essentially a love that's rooted in the will rather than the emotions. That it's a love of determined action rather than abstract feelings. It matters because it's working from this basis, it's working from this foundation that we're able to discern the difference between truth and falsehood in this whole area of God's love, of Christian love. And we we do this by by focusing on the characteristics of love, of, of God's love that we find here in the the passages that we read. And the first characteristic of God's love, I believe, is that his love sacrifices. His love sacrifices. 1 John 3, 16 and 4, 10. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I've got to say it is possible to apply and to interpret this very narrowly here. Because 1 John 3.17 goes on. 
And, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And so then it is possible to conclude that the sacrifice that love demands of us is the willingness to be martyred. And in, in that sense, following Christ's footsteps, and by doing that, so we demonstrate his love, which some of us in some may be quite happy with as it gets us off the hook, because martyrdom, many things are a threat, but martyrdom's not a real threat in the UK today. But let, let me just say and ask the question, is it right to narrow down the expression of Christ's sacrificial love in our lives in this kind of way? to martyrdom. I've got to say, I don't believe it is. For think of it. The ultimate demonstration of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ was his death on the cross for us as there he paid the price of our sin and gave us the opportunity by faith to have the burden of sin taken from us and shared in his resurrection life. Well, surely, the real parallel to this the day-by-day parallel to this is that the Bible calls those who follow Jesus in the same way to die to self and live for God. As Romans 6.11 says to us as Christians, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this then relates to God's love in this way. That if we are to love with his love. If we are to love the unworthy, ungrateful, undeserving, if we are to love men and women in, our, in their sin, then that will involve sacrifice. That is, we similarly have to die to self, be alive to God in the spirit of God in order to love in that kind of way. But you know, I don't find really all that much of this kind of love in churches today. I think more commonly what we find is people ready to love others and ready to love other Christians when they're doing well and when things are right between us. But when things start to go wrong in their life or when stresses and strains for some reason begin to emerge in our relationship, well then God's people can seem to find it desperately difficult to love. Do you see why that's so? Do you see what the the problem is? I believe it's because we are trying to love with this world's love. We are trying to love with that love that's based on feelings, that love that depends on emotions. And so when we don't feel like loving, we just give up trying to love. But what we've forgotten at this point, perhaps what we've never really understood is that loving God's way isn't something that comes easily and naturally. It isn't something that just kind of emerges from our feelings. No, it's something that we have got to, at times, die in order to do. It's something that we need the enabling and power of God to do. It's something that, at times, by an act of the will, so overcoming our natural feelings that we have got to determine to do, even when we don't feel like it. And the way I believe that this process works is that often we have got to act in loving ways before we actually feel loving in our hearts. 
We've got to do the loving thing. Even when we don't feel like doing it. And once we, we do this, and once we keep on determining to do it, once we keep on being committed to do that, then very often the feelings will eventually follow. Whereas, if we just wait for our feelings to change in and of themselves, if we just wait for that to happen in a vacuum before we love, well, I'll tell you, if we wait for this to happen, we could wait for a lifetime. There's too many broken relationships among Christians bear tragic testimony to. We could wait for a lifetime. We have got to determine to love. We have got to act in love by an act of the will. So God's love sacrifices. It also shares. For John in verse 17 of of chapter 3, after talking of how Jesus in love laid down his life and and stressing how we then were called to follow him and lay down our lives in turn, he then goes on, if anyone sees, if anyone has material possessions, sorry, and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, you see what John's doing here? I hope you do. That is knowing our tendency to emotionalize and idealize love, and in that way distance ourselves from love, make it something that's kind of out there, something that's airy-fairy. Well, John's response here is to knock down all our castles in the air and spell out love's demands in terms of down-to-earth, here-and-now rooted practicalities. And what he's saying really is, you maybe like to dream about love. Perhaps to envision yourself as a martyr or in some way as a sacrifice to love. You maybe like to talk a lot about love and maybe even to wait for the hurting and suffering in the world. But what John says is what really matters is acting in love. Doing what love demands. Right where you are, right now. Seeing the need of a brother. And notice it's not brothers in general. He's not letting it, he's making it specific. It's a brother in particular, bringing it right, right home. But seeing the need of a brother. And hopefully feeling for that brother or that sister. But no matter whether you feel it or not, doing what love demands. That's what counts. That's true love. That's God's love expressed in real life. But talking about love, feelings of love that go no further, well, these might sound good. They might make us feel good about ourselves. They might even look good to undiscerning people. Yet this is not the love of God. It's not God's love made manifest. It's not God's love made flesh in our lives. It's not because God's love determines the love. And God's love acts in love. Again, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has not pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So God's love then sacrifices 
God's love shares and it also suffers. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Hates you as you live like this. Now what we're talking about here is, is about a Christian whose experience of God's love is such that they're able to suffer for Jesus' name and yet still know his love, live in his love, show his love. Because you see, we will at times suffer as we walk in the way of love. It's happening in many other countries to a degree. It's beginning to happen to this country because the world, you see, the world doesn't like it when the light of Jesus, of the love of Jesus in our life expresses and exposes their darkness. It doesn't like it and you shouldn't be surprised at this because this is what Jesus himself said would happen. John 15, 18, it says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, what many Christians, it seems to me, experience in their Christian life is, is at the beginning of their Christian life, God often, not always, but often, God seems to shield young Christians from suffering in the same way that we would take extra care of a baby. So you see, God takes care of us as his spiritual babies. And often in the early Christian days, our lives are relatively trouble-free and we get a pretty smooth ride. But you see, then the time comes when we've got to grow up and face up to our responsibilities. The time comes when we've got to take our place as soldiers in the ranks of God's people facing up to a world that's hostile to him. And so suffering comes. And in the early stages of this, we maybe cry out, why, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? But as we mature in the Lord, as we grow in our understanding of him and of his ways and our experience of his love, but well, we come to see that what else can we expect but suffering? Why should we expect otherwise as we follow in the footsteps of a Lord who suffered and died on the cross for us? But we also come to know and to experience that as we suffer for his sake and yet at the same time remain open in our hearts and spirits to him, we find that the Lord of love draws near to us in a very special way. So this then is a valid test of love. And if we find someone who just talks about love when the going's easy, who's ready to sing and shout out when life's going well, yet in whom God's love and grace is totally absent when the going gets tough, well, then we've got to at least doubt that person's experience of the love of God. The Christian who's mature in love, though, well, they might have to struggle to it. They might have to struggle through doubt and fear and through tears, but they will eventually reach the place where they see suffering for Jesus even as a privilege where they're able to keep on loving him and loving his people, no matter what's happening in their life. So those then are the tests of love. Tests here that John implored his people 
to use. For then, you see, as now, there were people around who talked a lot about God's love and who claimed great experiences of God and of his love, but who failed these tests here miserably because their love was all about emotion and experience. But as it had no real root in their will, it bore no real fruit in their lives. These were people who maybe talked a lot about love, but who showed by their unwillingness to sacrifice, to share, to suffer in the name of Jesus, that in fact, the love of God did not really live in them. So I'd ask you in turn today to be a disarming Christian. Don't just accept talk of love, but instead test for love. Test and see whether someone's love is a matter of talk and emotion and just as a matter then of this world or whether their love as it's lived out in their life proves itself to be a love that's rooted in God himself. A love that's about the will. A love that's about action. A love that's ready to sacrifice, ready to share, ready to suffer in Jesus' name. Test and see that we might be a people that maybe don't please this world, but who please above all the one who really matters, who please, who please God by the way we live. Let's come and pray together. Father, we're reminded again from your word just how different we are to be as a people. We can read these words of love superficially. We can read them through the lens of this world's understanding. And love is just about emotion and experience. It can become something very, very empty, something frivolous, something that just disappears when the going gets tough. But Lord, here in this passage, here you're talking about a very special love. You're talking about your love. A love that's about the will. A love that no matter what's going on around, no matter what we see in someone's life, but a love that will love them no matter what. Even when we don't feel it, even when we're not moved to it, still we will act in loving ways. Lord, help us to be people whose lives bear the stamp of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.